You're listening to the Planet Earth 2072 podcast from City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Louisiana Basin has now gotten more than 43 days of rain and it doesn't appear to be slowing down. Flooding from New Orleans and all the way to Hammond has brought a lot of businesses to a halt. Orange crops for the year are in danger of being decimated. The winter storm that froze much of the South over the past couple of months has taken a toll on whatever growers were hoping to salvage after another bad year. Congress continues to debate over the climate action bill, now ballooning to more than $3 trillion. The Wilson Republican Party continues to hold fast against the current bill. Meanwhile, President Katherine Emerson says that she is ready to do whatever is within her power to make this bill happen. Cities all across the U.S. are experiencing the highest temperatures ever. In Dallas, the thermostat popped up at 106. In Boise, it got as hot as 103. And down in Miami, it was a blistering 105 degrees with a heat index of over 114. Now proclaims many of the coastal regions of Vietnam, especially the Vung Tau area, a disaster zone. Hundreds of thousands of residents have been forced out of their homes as floodwaters remain also, sitting in Miami's place mayor now. Miami's calling for the state and the federal governments to do more to help. The October King Tide is the worst ever as waters have reached more than three feet across Miami Beach and parts of Miami-Dade. The current seawall is not working in the pump system has been working non-stop for more than five years. struggle with mudslides as rough weather lingers over the city. They have now experienced more than three straight weeks of rain. People have left many parts of town because they're afraid of the mudslides taking them away and washing them into the ocean. Some are staying in their homes to protect whatever they own. Meanwhile, ports in Cuba remain closed as flooding in the streets of Havana worsens. Tens of thousands have... fascinating city. It's also a city facing incredible threats. I've lived in South Florida most of my life, and that's close to 40 years. I can attest that life here has changed quite a bit. It's hotter than I remember it being during my childhood. The flooding is worse than I ever recall, and that's on sunny or light rain days. Miami is in trouble. No, it's not the only city facing a climate threat. I'll be the first to say that, but it's the one I live in, so that means a lot more to me and the people who live here. The gleaming towers of Miami Beach, set against the dazzling blue of the sea, are a scenic signpost for seekers of fun and sun. Sunshine is their stock in trade, and they serve it up lavishly. With some of the world's finest ocean bathing a few steps away, who needs a swimming pool? Miami Beach lies on a thin coastal strip. On one side, the Atlantic. On the other, Biscayne Bay. It could be argued that this city was built in the most perfect and yet most horrible place that you could build a city. It's on the southern edge of the eastern coast of Florida. That's an area that's smacked by the Gulf Stream. It's built on sand and limestone on top of an aquifer. We're surrounded by water. I mean, literally, there's the Atlantic, then on the other side, there's the Everglades. And then again, underneath us, an aquifer. So you're probably asking, 
Why would you build a city in a place that will eventually flood once the oceans rise over a couple of meters? Well, have you been here before? By the way, that's Pitbull, the singer, as you guessed. And no joke, he actually made a song promoting Miami Beach, promoting Florida, but really Miami Beach, called Sexy Beaches. And it was actually a promotion by the state of Florida. He was paid a million dollars by the state of Florida to make that video. I'm not kidding. The sun just seems to shine a bit brighter here. Even on cloudy days, it feels brighter here. The sand of the beach is soft to the touch, and the water is this beautiful aquamarine. It glistens uh, both day and night. The winters are mild, and the city has a life all its own, easily earning the moniker of the Magic City. But I did tell you, right, that it's in a lot of trouble? Because it is. By the end of the century, the seas could rise anywhere from two to six feet, maybe more. And that's going to leave big pockets of the region underwater, unless we figure something out, and I'm not really sure how we get over that. If you want to get a glance at how the city could look in the future, just look at the pics of downtown after the most recent heavy rain. We actually had a tropical storm that came through, dropped 11 inches, and the roads basically became rivers. Cars were swept away. One person who wants to fight for this city is author and environment reporter Mario Riza. His most recent book is called Disposable City, Miami's Future on the Shores of a Climate Catastrophe. If you want to know the threat and the attitude of the people who face that threat, you got to read this book. His book starts with the story of an event. The late Maurice Ferre, one of Miami's former mayors, spoke a few years back at a ceremony of the commemoration of a park. And he said something at the event that surprised people but his words couldn't be more poignant. It was exactly what Miami citizens needed to hear. Let's start that conversation now with environment reporter and author, Mario Ariza. Maurice Ferre was dying, right? He was in his uh, later years. He had some advanced form of horrible cancer. Um, and he was giving his last speech uh, down in, I believe, Bayfront Park. Um, and he kind of wandered a bit off script in a way that people didn't expect. Um, people were thinking he was going to do some kind of elogium for his his years as a mayor. He was going to you know, talk himself up. No, Maurice Ferre sat down and was like, folks, this climate change thing is real. You cannot stop the water from coming up under you because it is uh, 
you know, uh, a limestone substrate soil that is as porous as a dish sponge. And uh, you have to figure out how to adapt and change the city and prepare for what is coming because what is coming will be terrible. And I, I wasn't there, right? I got the speech afterwards, but I was like getting the live, uh, you know, responses from people who were like, oh my God, what? I didn't think he was gonna, oh my God, you know? Um, so it was it was really heartening to see a, a dude, you know, making his exit off the stage by telling a very, very difficult truth to tell that we really here in Miami do our best to ignore. Do you think people listen to it though? Because they, they, as you said, they were going in expecting something. He does that. People know this, the issue, but do you think they really listened to what he had to say? I mean, I think for the, the political class that was there, um, it did have some impact. Right. Um, I mean, we can we can only hope because um, there were both Democrats and Republicans gathered there. Um, and, and, you know, I, I know that the, the current head of the Florida Republican Party was in the audience. I think I, I think the thing with 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 climate um, is, is a lot of like the thing with grief. Right. Um, you, you avoid grief and pain and sorrow as much as you can. Right. And if you're in public office, if you're in. Um, you know, in a profession where you don't have to, like, stare at this thing straight in the face every day, um, then it's a very human, very human thing to do to just kind of try not to think about it until, you know, you can't avoid it. You think about all the research that you did for the book, but also just for the work that you do. And, you know, I think maybe one of the challenges when talking about climate crisis the climate crisis that's coming. Um, is there one thing that people should be focused on most? Yeah, I, I think there is one thing they should be focused on. And I, I, I don't think a lot of people have a historical sense or they don't understand history very well. Um, but I, I, I think they should be focused on the fact that they're living in, in a moment unlike any other moment in the entire geological history of the planet, right? Like n at no other point that we've been able to tell has this much carbon dioxide been pumped into the atmosphere this quickly, right? And that is a situation that has to be thought about in terms of its magnitude and in terms of its impact on society, right? Because human societies, when they, you know, when things aren't going right in a human society, right, um, there's usually some kind of destabilization in the political system. Um, but the way that climate change works is that you do all the wrong things on the front end, and then on the back end, the bad things happen, and they start to happen, and there's no way to stop them, because it's like you gave the car too much gas. Um, so if you focus on the fact that these are unprecedented times, right, and if you focus on the fact that this is a unique moment in the history of not just the species and the history of the planet, um, you can start to actually think about a theory of change, right? Because all of a sudden that thing about it being such a big problem that nobody can fix, well, you know, you can be part of the generation or the part of the group of people who messed it up for everybody in perpetuity ever. Or conversely, you can be part of the group of people that fixed the biggest problem that anybody had ever faced, right? And it just kind of comes down to what kind of person you want to be. 
Something I thought was interesting. So let me get this straight. Uh, according to the book, what is it in the year 2067? You're going to be how old? Probably like 80, 81, 82. Oh, okay. And you talked about, you know, will you be able to celebrate that here, you know, with your family? Um, you know, I, I usually save the question and I will uh, about what you think the future is going to look like. But let's start with this. How hopeful are you for that future that in 2067, you could be here in, in South Florida? Well, I, you know, I just came back from a city meeting, right? And democracy is very messy. Um, and this was a city meeting where um, city planners and engineers were presenting a plan to adapt Brickle Bay Drive um, to sea level rise and to make it more resilient um, and to, you know, just kind of change it because it's kind of drab and it needs a redo. And um, they were sort of presenting things like, how high do you want the seawall to be? Do you want there to be mangroves to people as if these things were a choice? Um, you know, as if like democratically we could come to some sort of consensus as to how, how, how high the water was going to rise. Um, and, and I think that worries me a little bit um, just because like there's, you know, democracy is messy. There's a lot of things you have to compromise on. Um, and it's, it's beautiful in that way. Um, but I don't think that folks here are working off of a shared basis of fact. And, and I, I do a lot of work to make sure that they do. And, and I've done a lot of work to make sure that they have, but I am very, very concerned. And, and Brickle, of course, I mean, that for people who don't know, that's a part of downtown Miami, very expensive part of downtown Miami. And, and there were images, uh, you know, after Hurricane Irma of some of those streets basically turned into rivers. So that's what people are, are trying to prepare for for the future. All right, keep that in mind because we're going to talk about, you know, the, the future. I mean, the, the interesting thing is you brought that up in your book. And this podcast, I mean, it's called Planet Earth 2072 with the idea of what will South Florida look like in the year 2072. And uh, I don't know if I'll make it to that year. That would be my 100th birthday. That'd be a nice birthday to have. It, well, I mean, it depends. Depends on if this, if if there's anything here. You're listening to the podcast Planet Earth 2072, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host Luis Hernandez, and we're talking with environment reporter and author Mario Ariza. You can find links to his work on our website, planetearth2072.com. By the way, what do you think about what he said about how the city of Miami finds itself in this amazing and frightening moment and still fighting over what to do next? Is your community in the same situation? You know, there's a climate risk, and yet not enough is done to resolve the problem. But share your thoughts anyway. I'd love to hear what, what's going on where you live. Find us on the website or on Facebook, again, under Planet Earth 2072. By the way, don't forget about the book that goes with the podcast. It's also called Planet Earth 2072, the science fiction novel. It's a collection of stories which take place in Miami and Las Vegas in the early fall of the year 2072. You can read a new story for free right now on Wattpad. Just look up a radio host or go online to the website because I've posted it there as well. Check it out. Now let's get back to our conversation with the author of the book, Disposable City, Mario Riza. 
I wonder if from the leaders uh, of Miami and the region, because you talk about democracy, and, and the leaders you've spoken to, from mayors and city commissioners, and now we have resiliency officers, and we even have a heat officer now, um, do you think that they're planning for that future to save it or to prepare for it? And are they doing enough? I, I think there are leaders here um, who are actively working on the issue and who understand what is going to happen and who are trying to get the wicked machinery of democracy to produce a beneficial outcome where some people can stay here somehow, right? I think that they're doing it using the tool that they have at hand, which is this growth machine, right? Cities are growth machines. They're designed to get bigger and with more people and you get more taxes and so you need development and stuff like that. And that's a rather blunt instrument to deal with the problem that we have at hand because if you're being honest with yourself, you recognize that you know the land area here is gonna decrease and the ability of any municipality to provide goods and services to people like sewage, like water, like light, like education is going to radically shrink. And, and you have to really ask yourself, you know, an almost philosophical question, which is this city that is a growth machine that's designed to consume and extract and produce and, and, and make capital, right? Um, how does it consider its own demise or how does it consider its own diminishment? And, and that's not a question that the leaders here have broached with the population. And that's not a question here that anybody's prepared to really discuss except some fringe elements of the anarchist collectives, which God bless them, they're actively planning for this stuff. Your parents, right, they're, they're in real estate, right? Yes, absolutely. They will sell you a waterfront apartment. Um, and, you know. <laughs> I don't think I can afford it. <laughs> neither can I. So, you know, and I've, I've had the chance to talk to real estate uh, developers and, and real estate agents uh, as well. And obviously they view Miami a certain way. Uh, and, and this is a great market. This is a hot market to be uh, in the business, I'd imagine. Or at least the ones I've talked to, they're very happy. Um, and they don't want to see that ruined. Um, so I'd imagine they don't like talking about this issue. Again, at least the ones I've spoken to, they really don't like talking about this issue. But I don't know, with your with your folks, what are those conversations like? You know, do they wanna do they wanna hear it? My folks are great. I love them. They initially thought I was gonna ruin all of their business with this book. You know, they they read they read the galley and they're like, Mario, you've ruined us. That's it, we're done. And then they realized, wait a second. This is a great marketing opportunity, um, you know, because we can position ourselves as the realtors who understand climate risk um, and who, you know, can tell our buyers where to buy and where to sell. Um, there's still opportunities in this market if you want to play that game of musical chairs and cool. But but yeah, it's it's a difficult conversation to have because I mean, one of our biggest products, one of our biggest growth machines is is this wonderful ability to turn what was once hellish swampland into glittering towers and then sell them to people from all across the world with very few questions asked as to the provenance of their money it's well think about the you know one of the things i think is interesting is 
you think about these debates that you go and you see where there's conversations about, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, flood mitigation, but, you know, talks about, uh, you know, uh, uh, pumps and seawalls and all this di- raising of roads, which now is leading to lawsuits. The other big thing, too, I think about is, uh, you know, we don't see it enough yet, but I think in some of the conversations I've had for this podcast have been discussed controlled and managed retreat will become a reality in our life and and so that that's got to be scary for people like your parents because at some point we're going to say that neighborhood has to go uh we and 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 you know you remember the flooding that we saw in the keys in key largo a couple of years ago where water comes in at a king tide and it, that it just sits there for weeks and weeks and weeks so when they see that what what are they thinking what do they, you know, what do they say? Like, oh my God, I mean, that would destroy a neighborhood's value like that. Right, right. Yeah, they despair like everybody else does. Um, and they worry and they're anxious about it in the same way that I am and, and that you are. Um, you know, but they, they're also actually very focused on high-end brickle um, condominiums, right? Not that they won't sell you a house on Key Largo, but that's not, that's not their farm area. Um, and, and there's a, there's a concept, um, in adaptation, um, where you sort of get a return on investment for your adaptation dollar, you sort of spend to defend. And so if you've got a lot of capital in one place, like Brickle, um, you're going to spend some money to defend it. And so that's how they sort of see that, right? They, they kind of try and and think about the places that are going to get defended or I try and point them there. Um, you know, but like, they're also creatures of their generation, right? Like they're not necessarily they're they're in their sixties, so you know they're not they're not thinking 60, 70 years ahead like I am. Because your parents are in real estate, I wondered if you had thoughts on this. Is say by the year twenty sixty seven, I wonder how many of the structures that exist now will still exist. Like how many of these homes will still last, or we have to rebuild them. Because you're gonna to have to build them differently to, you know, I don't, I don't know. What do they think about that? And 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 you know, do you think that that I know we're seeing a lot of towers go up? Is that what Miami's destined for? Is just yeah vertic- vertical growth? Yeah. Well, so I'll I'll tell you what I think about it because um, I haven't exactly asked them that question. Um, I think that we're probably gonna lose a good half dozen neighborhoods between now and the time that I die and that we have to figure out a good way to lose them, right? And we don't have that right now. We don't have a plan. We don't have a pot of money for knocking the houses down. We don't have a way to like incentivize somebody to come in and rebuild something that'll stand up to the ocean there. So that's one issue. Two is this question of of density and verticality, right? There is no debate among urbanists, or there's some debate, but there's very little debate among urbanists about the benefits of urban density, right? You want density because density just gives you this economy of scale, and it allows you to be much more efficient in terms of how you get goods and services in, um, and how you get capital out, and how you get energy in, and, and how you move around, right? And so we see a lot of very well thought out but very aesthetically displeasing in my own opinion, transit-oriented development along the US-1 corridor, a lot of like big high-rises that are going up. And that's what needs to happen, right? The city, you can't go out anymore because you hit the urban development boundary. And so 
you can't really defend or it doesn't make sense financially to go into a neighborhood that single family homes and raise the roads and put in pumps and put in these culverts and, you know, unless they're like really expensive homes. But if you're talking about an area that has 25, 30, 40 story buildings and they're connected with public transportation and the population density is super high and the tax returns are super high in that area, then it makes sense to defend it. And, and that's just the brutal math that you're going to see play out here in South Florida at, over the next 10 years, right? Because, you know, if you're listening to what's going on with the Southeast Florida Water Management District um, and, and how everybody's yowling to the Army Corps of Engineers about how they need all of these, you know, gravity structures replaced with pumps and they're like, well, maybe we can do it by 2030. And then the water management district's like, 2030? We've got six inches of sea level rise between 2030. So it's going to rain, and you're not going to be able to drain it here. So all of that, you know, it's going to get much more complicated. And when you mentioned the, the you know, the boundary, the urban development yeah. boundary, that, of course, is the, the line that we set so that we don't keep building out into the Everglades. And yet we keep pushing that line. So, you know, unfortunately... Once again, you're listening to the podcast, Planet Earth 2072, a production of City of Dreams Media Incorporated. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can follow us on most podcast platforms. And if you are a listener, tap the subscribe button. And if you like the content, rate and review it, and then go share it with somebody because the more people hear it, the better. We're talking with Mario Riza, environment reporter for Floodlight and the author of the book, Disposable City, Miami's future on the shores of a climate catastrophe. You can follow all of his work on our website, planetearth2072.com, or find it on Facebook under the same name. You know, it's pretty interesting what Mario said about this community and that it isn't spending enough time talking about the demise of neighborhoods. Let's take a listen to what he said again. And, and you have to really ask yourself, you know, an almost philosophical question, which is this city that is a growth machine that's designed to consume and extract and produce and, and, and make capital, right? Um, how does it consider its own demise? Or how does it consider its own diminishment? And, and that's not a question that the leaders here have broached with the population. You know, we talked about this briefly in the first episode, and which is this idea of managed retreat. And it's just a reality in many communities. It's happening in places right now. It's where the city and city leaders have to talk about the future and think about making those difficult decisions now, you know, instead of pushing it off till later. But I don't know. We'll see. Maybe, maybe it's happened in your community. Share that story with us. We'd love to hear it. Now, before we get back to that conversation, I wanted to tell you about another podcast from the same company, City of Dreams Media Incorporated. It's called The Reporter Studio. It's a podcast that introduces you to journalists so that you might better understand what they represent as the news media. What do you know about the news media? Have you ever met a journalist? Welcome to the Reporter Studio. The first one was like the Superman phase, where it's like, I can do anything and I'll never be harmed. And then the second one was, I can do most things, maybe I'll be harmed. And then the third one was, something will happen to me. If Audience I anger. Um, people are like, oh, these are 
fact checkers are just, you know, they're not really umpires. They're the liberal media. They're trying to put their thumb on the scales. But worse than that, like you'd be kind of horrified by the profanity and some of the- That's if you go to Mars, drop off, and then immediately come back. Like we're talking about something eight, nine, 10, 12 years, you're going to that planet. And while you're there, you're not on the surface of the planet. You're, you're stuck in your spacecraft or stuck underground because it's- and Nobody's patsy. And one thing I learned after the Iraq war is that you just cannot allow um, someone else to control. Today, it's a bit rough being a journalist. And sometimes I would agree, we deserve the criticism. But many of us are just ordinary people trying to do a job the best we can. Learn more about the reality of the lives of journalists at The Reporter Studio. Go to thereporterstudio.com and find the podcast on your podcast app. You can learn more at the website, thereporterstudio.com. Now let's get back to our conversation with author Mario Riza. I wonder when when you put, published your book, what the response was like, uh, because this is a touchy subject here. I mean, people in South Florida, at least I think my experience has been that they get it. There's a problem. I think that it's a bipartisan issue. Most people, under, Republicans understand it because their yards are flooding too. But I wondered when it came out, because it really was kind of like the way Maurice Frey kind of surprised everybody. And I think it was that book that kind of slapped everybody in the face. Like, you need to pay attention to this. I don't know. What, what did you what did you hear? I got a lot of great feedback, but my book also dropped at the height of the largest COVID surge we'd had to that point. Right? It dropped in July on Bastille Day of, of 2020 in what was, you know, a very dark time for a lot of people and a very dark time for me, right? I was working 90 hours a week and I'm, I'm sure you were, you were doing the same at a, at a local outlet, you know, trying to like tell news during a once in a century pandemic. So it was kind of rough, really. Um, like I've been to therapy about this. Like it was a lot. I burnt out. I did. Um, I did like maybe 60 or 70 web events. I had wonderful conversations with people. Um, the book received great reviews in the New York Times. And I think the people who needed to read it, read it. But I, I do have to say that because it came out at a time when everybody else kind of had something else going on, sales have not necessarily been the highest, if that makes sense. Well, I, I know that people have talked about it. So, and and hopefully as we get out of this you know, I, that's why I wanted you on because I wanted to bring attention back to it because I think it, it, look, it's, it's what I enjoyed about it most, I think is, is again, that like when you talk to Caroline Lewis, which you did, I have as well, it, it made the subject, uh, digestible. And this, this leads to this question because it goes back to what you, what I said earlier to you is people may understand that there's a problem and there's a crisis coming, but at the same time, how do you get the message across and get people to act when people are struggling just to make it? Now we're going to tell them, but you got to think about the future and you got to be, we got to do our part. They're like, I'm just trying to pay the rent, man. I'm just trying to put food on the table. So I don't know. I mean, how, what do you think? I mean, as, as a journalist and someone who's fighting for, for, for the issue, 
you know, you could, you can, you know, uh, uh, preach to the choir all day long, but it's reaching that average person when they don't have the time. What, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I think this gets to one of the main issues in journalism today, right? Where, you know, journalists kind of think of themselves just as storytellers, but they don't also think of themselves as creators of the places where stories can happen. And one of the biggest things that I've learned through writing about the climate crisis and through telling people stories down here in South Florida is that the act of community building is both an incredibly necessary endeavor and a journalistic endeavor, right? Because like in, in a time when your attention is colonized by ad tech and, you know, the singularity wants you to keep on clicking and in a moment where, you know, discourse is, is poisoned and the parties don't talk to each other and everybody's like the empire is failing and there's going to be a civil war, like chill out folks, but bringing people together, right? Especially people who are trying to make it day by day, right? And offering them a chance to come into themselves and come into a meaning of what their lives are in, in a shared space, in a community where they can have actualization, right? as people who are living through what is arguably one of the most important moments in human history to live through, that is, is really one of the only things that I know that works, right? It's, it's not necessarily like, hey, I'm gonna tell you a story about your city. It's like, I'm gonna tell you a story about how bad things are gonna be, and then give me your number, and I'm gonna put you in a group chat, and we're gonna keep on talking about it, and then we're gonna hang out eventually and and you're maybe going to actually become somebody who works on this somehow in your spare capacity or even full time. And we're going to know each other. Right. And we're going to have disagreements and we're going to be respectful about them. But we're going to come into a spirit of democratic community making. And really, like one of the things as as a journalist that I'm learning is, is that you have to curate that space. you got to tend that garden. Where did you the know. passion for this topic come from? I just kind of want to, like, I like this city. I want to stay here, dude. Like, I, I do. I love it. Like, this is a place that that is weird and, and insane. And, like, I've had the wonderful opportunity to write about crime here for a couple of years. And that was a blessing. Like, I, I just, I really am motivated to try and save the place that I love. Um, and if that cannot happen, to try and help it die in a good way. Very so. interesting. I have not heard that yet. That's interesting. Well, that, that leads us to the last question. I, I wanted to know, it, you seem like an optimistic guy, but I want to know your thoughts. Imagine, let's say you, you might actually make it, you know, you might live, you'd be in your late eighties. If you make it to the year 2072, I want you to imagine you're there. And what do you think the city looks like? And, and I mean, you could point out anything in particular. I'm just, what, you know, knowing what's happening, what's going to happen, that's unavoidable. What is the city going to look like? Do you think we make it? I'm going to be really optimistic in this response. Okay. And I, I want people to understand this response through a lens of uh, belief in the power of the human spirit and belief in the power of um, democratic institutions and belief in the inherent goodness of people and their ability to come together and stop new oil and gas infrastructure from being built. Right. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say that Miami is going to be a lot smaller than it is now. There's going to be a lot less people here. And the people who are here are going to be concentrated on the high ground in very dense 
urban landscapes. Um, and then I'm gonna go ahead and say that there's gonna be a lot of work here to make sure that the people who don't have as much can and, and, and do share in the benefits of living in that high ground and aren't relegated to some sort of like, you know, favela-like conditions on the flats that flood. Um, and I'm gonna say that the city has figured out how to sell something other than sand, sun, and sin. You know, like this is a place that needs to figure out how to sell uh, flood control, how to sell living with water, how to sell um, green finance, right? And it's become a, a hub for the technology necessary to deal with the climate crisis. And it has taught other cities how to live. You know, that's how the city survives, by learning how to live and then teaching other places to do so. Um, you know, and then hopefully, hopefully I can, you know, have a nice little habitacion, um, like a pensioner's apartment, uh, you know, and, and hang out, you know, like like the old guys do in Hong Kong and, and you know, just play chess. And, and, oh, you mean you're not going to be over at the domino park just uh, <laughs> slapping dominoes down? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> slapping capicuat. been listening to our conversation with reporter and author Mario Ariza. He's a reporter with the company Floodlight, and he authored the book called Disposable City, Miami's Future on the Shores of a Climate Catastrophe. You can find a link to his work in the description of the podcast or on the website planetearth2072.com. By the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts about anything that you've heard in this episode or the episode before it, but you know, especially, what do you think about Miami or your city? What do you think it's going to look like in 50 years? If temperatures keep rising and the oceans keep rising, how is it going to change the landscape of your hometown? Share your thoughts on the website or on Facebook, as I really would love to hear them. Also, think about this. I asked Mario, and I'll ask you, how do you get people to do more for the environment when basically, look, all of us, we're just trying to deal with everyday life? Also, share your thoughts on the website. Well, coming up in episode three of the podcast. Uh, I, I think it looks like a city that has adapted to uh, a new reality. Uh, we have to accept that uh, no matter how bold and ambitious we are in addressing this challenge, that uh, there are going to be changes uh, to our natural environment that are going to make life a little more challenging. Republicans, some of them, understand that there is a climate crisis happening, and they are trying to do something about it. Tune into episode three coming up in just a couple of weeks. Thanks again for listening to Planet Earth 2072. You can follow more about our guests and the stories and articles that were used in the research for this podcast. It's on the website, planetearth2072.com. And I always welcome skeptics or deniers. All I ask is this, be respectful. If you're not respectful, you can't take part in the conversation. But if you are, I'd really love to hear where your ideas come from. I'd love to hear how you feel about this issue. And, hey, I wouldn't mind having a conversation with you. But again, be respectful. That's the only thing that I ask. And I also want to say thanks again for listening.
Hey, thanks so much for sticking around after the podcast for this special little extra that I wanted to add. Again, I wanted to remind everybody that this podcast actually started out as a book, a science fiction novel, or technically a climate fiction novel. And it's called the same thing, Planet Earth 2072. The first couple of stories from that novel are available right now for free. You can find them on the website or you can go to Wattpad because a lot of writers are there now. And if you are on that platform, just look up Radio Host. The book is a collection of 12 separate yet interconnected stories, and it's going to be out later this year. Here's a sample of the new story. Rich rolled over onto the side of the bed, then stretched across the nightstand to shut off the skin-crawling shriek of the alarm clock. After a few deep breaths, he labored to take the ten steps to the bathroom, the weight of too many cheeseburgers and beers now pressing on his tired knees and back. The face in the mirror felt like witnesses at an accident scene, standing there and watching. Are you judging me? Fuck off. The cold water quickly woke the 45-year-old Hoover Dam engineer, but all the soap in the world couldn't clear the scent of the night before from his crotch. It was a sharp smell of cherries and cheap perfume. What was her name? Rich pulled open the drapes to the sight of a 30-foot-tall dancing woman on the AR screen of the hotel across the street. She stared into the room, teasing with her wink, her arm barely covering her left breast. Thanks for visiting Prim. Come back soon. The receptionist was too sweet at an hour like this. How could someone be so sunny before the sun had even come up? Prim, Nevada, the perfect place for people like Rich. Running from reality. It's not even a town, it's just five casinos on the border of Nevada and California, surrounded by mountains, deserts, and solar panels. After the divorce, Rich's ex-wife took the house and left him with a truck, which he slept in often. The lawyers emasculated him to the point where blowing paychecks at the blackjack tables felt normal, and at least once or twice a week, he tried to push the memories of his former life out with the embrace of an anonymous warm female body. Rich loaded his truck and slid into the front seat. He said the word ignition, and the truck turned on. Then he said, Work. A red light flashed on the top right corner of the dashboard screen. The vehicle didn't have enough juice for an hour and a half drive to the office. Damn it. Go to the nearest station. The truck backed out of the parking lot and traveled two blocks to a Tesla electric station. Rich hooked up the cable and went into the mart for his regular cheap breakfast sandwich, coffee, and Kangyang water. Twenty minutes later, he was back on the road heading north. His cube flashed an advisory. A female voice filled the cabin of the vehicle. The National Weather Service is issuing a heat advisory for southern Nevada. Temperatures are expected to reach 126 degrees Fahrenheit today with a heat index of 135. The Weather Service is advising that people stay indoors until sundown. Make sure to reduce your exposure to the sun. Won't matter to me. I work underground. Cube, what's the news? A different female voice began speaking. You're listening to KNV News for New Vegas and the Southern Nevada region. I'm Estelle McDonald. Legislators in Carson City are now in the second week of the extra session as the fight over the emergency water rights bill continues. State Senator Alan York was on the floor yesterday fighting for the votes to pass the controversial bill. This bill, it's about our survival. 
The Western states have turned on each other, and now we're all fighting just for a few drops of whatever water we can squeeze out of the ground. We must ensure that what is for the great state of Nevada stays in Nevada. Lawmakers are expected to vote on the bill again by the end of the week. Meanwhile, water levels at the pipeline are again running low. Construction of the Lake Michigan pipeline is ongoing. Many believe once it's finished, many water problems for the region will subside. In other national news, the city of Miami and much of South Florida are bracing themselves as Hurricane Carew is slowly moving over the Bahamas, now a Category 3 storm. Some forecasters believe the storm is still likely to turn north. Rumors on the second web dispute those claims and show that the storm is likely to strike directly over Miami. The truck's electric motor hummed as it coasted on the slow lane of Highway 15. Rich counted the number of times that he saw the Zoom train. The five-passenger car light rail rolled over the desert terrain like a bolt of lightning back and forth between Vegas and Los Angeles. This moment, the long drive to work, was the worst part of the day, what he hated most. There was too much time to think, time that slowed with each passing mountain. The slower time passed, the harder it became to keep thoughts of his ex-wife from making him want to punch through the windshield. Maybe it was time to get out of Nevada. 40 minutes later, his 2060 Ford Electron started stalling as it climbed the final hill before reaching city limits. Come on, I don't need this. Rich banged on the dash yelling, get there. The truck labored at the top of the hill. Once over the horizon, the glittering lights of New Vegas illuminated Rich's face. The sun was beginning to crawl into daylight with beams reflecting off the high towers and the half-dome roof. Scattered across the valley were more than a dozen smaller nanofabric half-domes, each about three to five square miles, covering wealthier neighborhoods from the sun's most intense rays. Not all neighborhoods had the money, though, to cover their people. The truck turned on Interstate 11, east toward Hoover Dam, through a couple of towns and past the rigid red cliffs of the region. The truck finally arrived at the power station employee lot a few minutes before eight. Rich checked in, then stepped into the service elevator that began a long descent into the bowels of the dam. The elevator ride took about five minutes. The temperature rose and the humidity thickened the deeper the elevator dropped into the dam, making each breath feel heavier. Once at the bottom, the grated steel door slid open into a tunnel, barely six feet in height and four feet in width. About 15 feet away to the left was a doorway to one of the spiraling metal staircases, nicknamed the Spiral to Infinity. Rich walked the 50 feet or so to the first control room. The doors to each compartment were five-inch thick steel doors controlled by touchscreen sensors. After putting his stuff in a locker, he picked up one of the station radios and tried calling his partner. It's an internal system connected by sensors throughout the dam since radio and wireless signals couldn't break through the concrete. The radio crackled. Devin, this is Rich. Where are you? Out. There was no response. Three more tries. Still silence. Maybe Devin hadn't arrived yet. Rich gathered his utility belt and clear pad and headed down another set of stairs toward one of the bypass tunnels. Hoover Dam is close to 800 feet of impressive engineering and millions of tons of concrete. On the outside, it's an aesthetically beautiful sculpture of human ingenuity. The inside is dark, warm, and moist, like entering the intestines of a mechanical dragon. The door closed behind him as Rich arrived at the bypass tunnel. 
a giant pipe roughly 30 feet in circumference. On either side, two walkways lit by small yellow bulbs about 20 feet apart. Water shoots through that pipe every few minutes, making the room rumble. Still trying to contact Devin, Rich walks down the half-circle tunnel to a door that reads Station 17. The steel door opens into a dark room. Lights, said Rich. Three lights turn on, barely illuminating the room with a dim yellowish hue. He heads to the back of the room and connects his clear pad to the wall unit as the system begins a diagnostic. While he waits, Rich looks around at the old electric pipes crisscrossing the walls attached to old generators. Engineers installed these in the early 2030s as the lake's water level dropped. When that happened, the dam couldn't generate electricity. They were disconnected in 2055 after the Nevada pipeline finally came online. As the system ran its check, Rich tried a mental exercise he learned from his therapist. It was a neuro-reprogramming of emotions. He tried picturing something that brought him pain and then tried making disruptive sounds while picturing funny scenes to erase the old images. Get out of my head, you crazy bitch! Get out! Get out! Get out! He paced the room as he flung his arms into the air. He hated doing these exercises, but wanted to get past his fury. He turned a third time and stopped. From the corner of his eye, he could see a shadowy lump stretched across the back wall behind one of the generators. Was it the shadows playing games with his mind? He pulled a small light stick from his pocket and flashed it along the wall. Then he dropped it, and he fell backwards. Oh my God! Devin? Hey, Devin? Rich picked up the light stick and shone it on the lump. The color in Devin's face was gone. It had congealed into a pool of blood that oozed out of the side of his head. Devin's eyes stared back at Rich, empty and angry. The man's last moment was shock and anger. Oh my God. Devin, what the hell? You could read those first two stories again on the website planetearth2072.com or find them on Wattpad at Radio Host. And thanks again for listening.